I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. Hi there, we're here again with uh, Charlie Dice. Great to see you, Charlie. Likewise. And uh, before we start, where are you? This is a, uh, we're, we're doing this via Zoom, but I'm just looking curiously at the background there. Where, where are you sitting? Yeah, you might be able to tell from some context clues. I've got the barometer and uh, some 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 line there. I'm down at the boat at the Berkeley Marina. This is becoming my home office slash. Uh, well, of course, it's a sailboat, so its primary function is for sailing, but it doubles as a little recording studio. So, got to okay. get you down here one of these days, and we'll record from the boat I'd for love as long to do as that. we can't. Yeah. For as long as we can't go to the garden, the, the convent. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we, were, we were just chatting before, and I was saying that you're like a new version of Radio Caroline, which Brits of a certain age will know. This was pirate radio, um, sitting offshore in a boat, beaming this revolutionary 1960s pop music. So we'll, we can worry about that in a different way. But um, this is, uh, it just reminded me of that with your sort of, uh, libertarian interests. So, great stuff. Well, hope, hopefully, we'll be noted for our revolutionary ideas. Yeah. Uh, although even that has a bit of a, I guess, a mixed connotation. Radical and interesting and harmonizing, which in today's world is revolutionary, but it's a in a in a metaphorical way, if we can call it that. We're not trying to create, instigate violence or topple a society. We want to uphold it. Okay, so today, uh, again, uh, regular listeners and viewers will know the themes that Charlie and I tend to uh, focus on. Uh, Charlie is organizing another 50-mile walk, and we mentioned this a little bit about the last one he did. Um, But I just want to introduce the subject, and how can a 50-mile walk, what what can that do? How can that be connected with um, the way of beauty? And so my view of these things and what Charlie is doing, which I find very interesting, is that, um, that really in life, the harmonizing factor for all of us um, is Christ. And so all human activity can be ordered to a relationship with Christ, with, at its heart, of course, the worship of God and the encounter with Christ in the, in the liturgy. So potentially all human activity can be ordered to it. And so when we look at things that don't seem so obviously liturgical, uh, what we're thinking about is how these mundane activities might be ordered to a liturgical principle and a a Christological principle. Um, And so the premise here is that once we start with Christian anthropology, and work our way down from or up from that principle, whichever however you view it, uh, work away from that principle to the consideration of all aspects of the human person, then the dichotomies that we're aware of um, disappear. Um, and so eating um, is both physical and can have a spiritual uh, symbolism to it. it, it it's it nourishes the body, but then, there, of course, then, of course, it nourishes the whole person who is a unified whole, who's physical, uh, material, and spiritual. And so it has an impact on our spiritual lives. And there are patterns of eating which are 
uh, indicate this to us through the feasting and the fasting of the year. And the timing of these cycles is daily, week, weekly, seasonal, and annual. And so um, what the sort of things that Charlie is looking at is, is in a sense, conforming to these patterns in uh, the things that we eat, the things that we don't eat, uh, exercise is something else you're very interested in. We'll touch on that in this uh, podcast. Work and recreation. And then, of course, prayer and worship. We know follows these cycles. If you're a Catholic or an Orthodox and you follow the liturgical year, less so in other traditions. Um, but the, uh, the harmonizing principle is Christ. And so I just thought it was worth saying that, it, it, just in case people feel we're getting a little bit tangential here. Um, so first, first of all, Charlie, uh, tell us about um, what you're doing, what you're organizing, and give us a, 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 just a summary of why this is, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, thanks for that introduction of the, the concept and tying it back to the theme of this podcast and the kind of the unifying principle of our lives, which is uh, the, the worship of, of God. And, and you bring it back to Christ, which uh, I haven't always done, at least explicitly in my mind. But I think that beneath the surface, there's a, a sense of being called, uh, being summoned, being challenged to go beyond maybe what you thought you were capable of doing. And so JFK, when he was president-elect in uh, 1960, just, just after winning the election but before taking office, uh, started to call Americans to a higher kind of being with this essay that he wrote for Sports Illustrated called The Soft American. And this essay could have been written uh, you know, today, and, and it would still resonate, I think, in the same way as that it did then. Since the 1960s, Americans have undergone kind of, a, you know, ebbs and flows with respect to the popularity of physical fitness. And you can think of uh, the 80s when there was, you know, all kinds of movements to, to do calisthenics and uh, all those little parklets that line the paths where you can do pull-ups or, uh, you know, special kinds of push-ups. I think those came around the 80s. So there was this wave where people became more aware of the need to, to take care of their health. Uh, and, and Kennedy's point was that every civilization of the past, at least any of the ones that we have any record of, the ones that were successful enough to, to sort of survive the test of time, had a knowledge of physicality and uh, the, the causes of vitality and vigor which we're in danger of forgetting because modern life is so comfortable, so convenient in ways that we don't actually have to move or be physical in the ways that our ancestors used to. So the, the, the call that, that was adapted from this essay was the, the Kennedy Challenge or the Kennedy March, 50 miles in 16 hours or less. And he picked this up from Teddy Roosevelt who had issued it as a challenge to his army generals saying, even though it's peacetime, we need to be prepared in the event of a conflict. Uh, and, and my officers seem to be softened. So uh, Teddy Roosevelt, this great promoter of the strenuous life, uh, called on his officers to do this. He actually gave them three days. But Kennedy said, you should be able to do it in, in a single day, 16 hours. A few people uh, kind of took up the, the call, including his, uh, his brother, who is Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, 
Robert Kennedy did it with some aides. All of his aides dropped out by mile 35, but Robert Kennedy finished the march. And uh, this spawned a lot of knockoffs. People started doing it around the world, even though it wasn't required of them. Uh, Boy Scout troops. And uh, actually, interestingly, Europe was where it caught on more so than the United States. And uh, throughout the the past 50 years, we've had uh, some traditions that have remained. But in general, uh, it's it's become rare for people to to do that long of a, a distance unless they're doing some kind of an ultra marathon. Um, I've never done a marathon or an ultra marathon, but walking is something that I think is accessible to everybody. Even if you can't do a full 50 miles, uh, most people can walk, you know, five or 10 miles. And in my experience, if you can walk 10 miles, you can walk 20. Uh, and from there, it's just a, a matter of working up uh, until you get to the full 50. <laughs> If you can do 10, you can do 20, and after that, 50's a breeze. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, I, I don't plan on doing the 50. I hope to join you for part of it, and we'll come to the, the, the additional meaning of this. I think it's worth um, bringing up that, as, as with mo- nearly everything in modern society, there's a dualism here. We swing from one extreme to the other. So while there is, there's a very strong aspect of what you described that sounds familiar to me, um, the other end of the spectrum is what you might, and I, I, someone, a friend of mine, described it to me as this just yesterday, uh, as this, um, the cult of health and wellness, which is absolutely dissociated from what it means to be natural or to, to what is natural for mankind. Um, and uh, makes a virtue out of it without seeing it as a as a maybe the end is sexual attraction or something, but the it's certainly not to make us fit for the life of a of a Christian, um, and so we need to guard against that. Um, and then the second point I have is that um, the language of virtue um, is something that. Uh, re- uh, really, it comes from veer, meaning man, but ultimately, uh, in order to the, the connotation there, which is of course true for men and women, um, is that we require strength, um, and uh, it, it needs um, discipline and strength to lead the good life, not just in a positive sense in what we follow, but also in restraint. And this is where the ideal of the gentleman. It's the man who knows how to be restrained as well as how to uh, actually act well and vigorously. Um, And I think this this in turn comes from the medieval ideal of chivalry. Um, So if we put it into that background, I'm not saying we need to do the 50 miles in chain mail, but um, there is a good uh, place for this. And in fact, your point about the fact that we're walking, that this is something that anyone or most can do. I mean, if you, that uh, at, at some level, some people can't, of course, not everyone is able to do so, but um, le- leads, I think, more naturally into the argument that this, this is something that uh, fits into a bigger picture of, of Christian anthropology, or it does in my, in my mind. So I don't know if you want to respond to those. First of all, the cult aspect, and then the, should we say, the chivalry aspect? 
um, of, of what I said. I, I think you can contrast the cult of fitness with a healthy physical culture. And Pope Pius Twelfth actually made a point of this. Uh, he was uh, an athletic pope. Uh, he actually had a gymnasium installed in the Vatican. But he put some boundaries on what were the proper roles for exercise. You know, St. Paul talks about uh, a little exercise profits the body, but, um, but godliness is profitable unto all things. And so uh, uh, exercise, keeping it within the, the boundaries of proper proportion means that you're not worshiping the body. Uh, you're strengthening and energizing it rather than draining it. You're providing some sort of refreshment for your spirit. You're not uh, working to the point of uh, spiritual sloth. And then um, lastly, it doesn't disturb sort of the, 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 the peace and the sanctity of the home. Mm. And I'm borrowing this. I, I actually just recently learned of, uh, of Pope Pius XII's uh, teachings from a, a book that I'm excited to, to uh, promote, which is Dr. Kevin Voss's uh, Fit for Eternal Life. And he's a psychologist with a background in bodybuilding who's essentially trying to come up with kind of a theology of, of bodybuilding where you become your own personal trainer by practicing virtue, by practicing, like you say, discipline, self-restraint. And uh, part of that is just the knowledge of, you know, what works and what doesn't, uh, prudence, a kind of instrumental rationality. Uh, but then it's also that brings all of the other cardinal virtues into play from fortitude to uh, what else, uh, you know. Uh, the idea of, uh, you know, bringing your body under your control in the pursuit of uh, helping other people, charity. Um, that's probably the, the ultimate reason to, to be stronger is so that you can be more effective in whatever other ministries or vocation you're pursuing. Right. That, that's great. Um, I'll post that up on the, uh, the notes that go with the, the show. I think I might also just put up my own painting of the new evangelist, and I chose a picture of a medieval knight. Um, and I thought about this very carefully. I didn't want to be accused of just having this romantic view of the, the past, which can happen in some Catholic circles, particularly traditional ones, actually. Um, and there's much that's good of the past, of course, uh, but um, I thought that this would speak to people today because of the image we have. That chivalry is still associated with medieval knights most, I think, uh, perhaps because uh, the ideal was not promoted so strongly in time since. But I felt that this would, even as a symbol of the past, if you like, would speak to people today for that reason. Um, okay, so let's come back to the 50-mile march. Tell us a few more details and, um, and anything else that seems relevant, but particularly how this fits in with, uh, first of all, what's, what sparked it off on this occasion, what, what made you decide to do another one so quickly, um, and we'll, we'll just go from there. So t tell us why now. The genesis for the idea came to me when I was out sailing. And you notice when you're in the central part of San Francisco Bay that there are three bridges. There's one to the north, the Richmond San Rafael. Uh, directly to the, the west is the Golden Gate leading out to the Pacific. And then there's the, the Bay Bridge that goes down to the, the South Bay. And uh, I've always 
had kind of a, a romance around the, the, these bridges and, and I've crossed them many times. I grew up in Marin County, which is north of San Francisco, and I've lived most of my life in the East Bay. Um, so I'm always crossing these bridges in a car. Uh, and until recently, the only one that you could walk was the Golden Gate. But they recently opened up a pedestrian pathway on the Bay Bridge, and then even more recently than that on the Richmond San Rafael, so people can walk or bike. Uh, and on the Richmond San Rafael, it's kind of a pilot program to see if people actually use it. Uh, I realized that the the loop that these three bridges make is almost exactly 50 miles. And right around the same time, I had read an article. There's a website called The Art of Manliness, which deals with a lot of these same themes. Sort of what what, what would a modern chivalry look like, mm-hmm. and but what you know who is a uh, who can be how do you how do you become a gentleman uh, is the the theme of that website and, and podcast. Uh, so I got to to planning my own, and I attempted it first on my own and made it from Treasure Island around the the three bridges. Well, I made it to the Golden Gate Bridge about 11 hours later, 40 miles, and found that the the bridge was closed uh, due to uh, a recent policy where they they shut it down past a certain time, depending on the the time of year, uh, as a suicide precaution, anti-suicide measure. And so I kind of pleaded with the the guard um, on the intercom to to let me through and make an exception, but, he wasn't having any of it. And so I took a lift to the, the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge where I had a ride waiting for me and uh, knew that I had to try again. And so I planned uh, a bigger group event where I invited people to do their own training beforehand. And I produced a, a little guide to efficient marching technique, which is relatively straightforward. You know, you put one foot in front of the other, you, you keep a uh, uh, your feet straight, you don't bend them outward, things like that. But there are some nuances and, and you can learn it just by practicing and becoming more aware of certain principles uh, and wearing the right footwear, a minimum sort of uh, a minimal foot that, that conforms to minimal shoe that conforms to the shape of your foot rather than contorting it. Uh, interestingly, Robert Kennedy did his 50 mile march in a pair of pointy Oxford shoes. So extremely uncomfortable, but, uh, I, you know, have the, the the benefit of using shoes that actually, you know, fit fit my toes and and uh, they're they're wide in the front and then there's zero drop from the heel to the toe. So you're not uh, you're not striking your heel prematurely when you come down. You can swing your leg out farther, and um, these are all techniques that just make it a little bit easier. And uh, and I only got a couple of takers for the second 50 mile march partly because this was right at the beginning of the shelter in place. And so people were being advised not to meet in groups. Yeah. And um, so I did it with just my, my friend, Ben, uh, who you do the, the, the evening Vespers with and, wow. and your, your housemate. All yes, of our, uh, so, yeah. We're, we're a, a small community of uh, the, the St. Jerome's alum and, uh, <laughs> and current residents. So, yeah. So the, this one was was a success. We made it around all three bridges, did it in about 16 hours, starting at six in the morning, ending around 9.30 at night. Uh, and I had originally planned to, to do it with uh, another MoveNet trainer, that's natural movement. Um, and this guy, uh, Nathan Amato, was planning on traveling up, but couldn't make it up because of the uncertainty around what was, what was gonna be allowed. 
now that two months have passed, uh, I think that it's becoming more and more obvious that uh, we can't go on indefinitely uh, like this and that we need a little bit of a shot in the arm in the same way that JFK gave this uh, rousing call to all Americans to, to not become the soft American. That's what we're doing this time around. We're saying going outside and, and walking is one of the healthiest things you can do. We can talk about the reasons for that, but in a nutshell, uh, you know, staying indoors comes with risks of its own. And so going out in small groups, keeping a distance of a few feet and, you know, not spinning or sneezing on each other seems to me like a, a reasonable balance of precaution with the need to start to get back outside and, and live life again. Great. And, and this is rather like the, the, the whole idea that this 50 mile march, we're not saying um, unless you do that, you, you're not matching up to the ideal. What, what to say, this really is a symbol of um, what everyone can aspire to by degrees, uh, I, I would say. Um, and so that's true of this. It's, it's a great idea, I think, a symbol of the, uh, this idea of chivalry and virtue and strength uniting all these values. Um, and on this occasion, there is a little bit of a uh, rebellious, uh, you know, we're back to Radio Caroline again, bucking the trend, I guess. Um, <clears throat> but um, I think that this point needs to be made that, that <clears throat> it's a bit like the cult of health and wellness. If you focus too much on one aspect of <clears throat> any aspect of life, um, and compartmentalize it without thinking of how it connects with others, um, inevitably you end up having detrimental effects on the others um, and not being aware of them. And so then you might swing to deal with that. And, swing to, and so you end up with these huge sort of swings of focus without having a balance in, uh, in your life. And something that strikes me is that I just feel that we could do more of um, an understanding of the, that what's happening in the lockdown, it's certainly, I, I haven't, you know, I, I'm not against the, the idea at all. In principle, um, the clear benefits, and I, I want people to be healthy and not catch the illness. Um, but there seems to be a lack of recognition in the debate, at least, that um, there are other aspects to, to man other than catching a, a virus. There are all sorts of things that contribute to our health and wellness uh, and uh, general well-being. I think I prefer that word to wellness, that phrase. Um, and that I have a sense that at the moment it's too narrowly focused on avoiding the virus and not enough on the costs of what the, uh, the, the proposed measures are, might have. Um, I don't know, do you, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would just cite the uh, quote from uh, Frederick Bastiat, the, the great classical liberal mm. uh, who talked about the seen versus the unseen, mostly as it relates to economics. Mm. Uh, but you, sat, you have policies that are enacted to help one group where it's, it's highly visible how it helps. Uh, but you don't, if you don't trace the long-term effects and the, the unseen unintended consequences, uh, you're missing the big picture. 
And with coronavirus, we see the hospital deaths from people who we know have the virus, and that's something that we can count, and it's broadcast on every TV screen around the country, and it's something that can be scary, and it is a real cost. But we don't see, at least not immediately, the effects of the bankruptcy, the, the depression, uh, the you know the the domestic abuse, all these things that that have gone hand in hand with people being shuttered in for this long. And the one that I would actually like to point out the most because it relates to both uh, the unseen and actually the seen costs of infection are the the effects of staying indoors on uh, vitamin D production, where we require sunlight to synthesize vitamin D which is uh, crucial for fighting infection. And uh, there have been some studies, there was one done in the Philippines and another in New Orleans that show some pretty shocking uh, results with, with regard to who's getting the virus and then who's experiencing the most severe symptoms. And it turns out that something like 80 to, at the lower end of the, the, the research, to up to 98% of the mortalities are in people who have vitamin D deficiency Wow. while only something like 4% of the fatalities uh, are from people who have uh, sufficient vitamin D. So these are just a couple of studies that, that I can also send you links for. Um, and I, I recently thought, you know, someone needs to compile this stuff into, into a document in one place, not just vitamin D, but uh, sunlight produces vitamin, uh, sorry, it's uh, antimicrobial peptides. It upregulates these small, uh, proteins that that fight bacteria at the level of our, our our skin and kind of the surface contact so if we're not getting sunlight we're more susceptible to the virus and who knows how many additional people have already gotten or will get the virus when they return to the outside world um, exposing themselves to other people before they've gotten that dose of sunlight so in a way the march whether you do five miles 10 miles or 50 uh, is a way to bolster your immune system as we start to reopen so that you don't get the, the shock to the yeah. system. And we're intending to keep social distance in this. We're not, we're not, you know, we hope that if uh, the, the news channels come and film us, I'm not expecting that, but then it, it won't go viral because it looks like we're a, an angry demonstration breaking the rules. I mean, that's, we want to look, we want to conform. Right. Now, one, one point that uh, I think could be a question of, people's minds is masks. And I'm of a few minds about masks because I can see how uh, for certain kinds of interactions, you know, if we're standing here face to face, yeah. uh, we all have a tendency to occasionally, even if we don't notice it or can't feel it, there are droplets coming out of our mouth when we yeah. talk, especially if we get really excited. Uh, so that can be a risk. I think that if you're all walking in one direction, and this also comes uh, from from reading actual research into the, the relative risks of being out on trails where people are walking and biking. And it's a, it turns out that it's extremely hard to get infected that way, partly just because you need a certain threshold of the viral load to, to get infected. So if you're only being exposed to a, a tiny, tiny, uh, you know, infinitesimally small droplet from, from someone walking on the other side of the path, that's unlikely to take hold. Whereas if you're in the household with someone um, frequently, you know, conversing or coming into touching contact, that's where it spreads. Uh, it's not on the trails. So I don't plan on requiring people to wear masks. I don't plan on wearing one myself. 
And I think that, you know, this could be taken as a, a sort of uh, rebellious thing, but, but to me, it's, it's more of, um, I'm weighing the risk of, uh, you know, getting less oxygen through the mask. Mm-hmm. And uh, another data point in favor of going outside is, is this open air factor where during the Spanish flu, soldiers who were treated in the overflow spaces when the hospitals filled up for the Spanish flu, put on cots outside, tended to recover faster than those who were in the tents or in the buildings. Uh, And they think that it might have something to do with the the presence of ozone uh, in the air, but there are studies on the virucidal effects of open air as well. So again, I think that there are trade-offs that we, we can kind of debate at the margin what the what the data says but in some cases it's, it's fairly clear that you know going outside getting fresh air these are beneficial yes i i go hiking regularly and, I, and when i'm i i was under the impression that if you're exercising you don't have to wear a bag uh, no one knows precisely what these rules are i have to say um, they change all the time yeah um so I, if I'm exercising, and I try and keep my distance, as you say, I'm, I'm not looking to cough over people, but um, I always assume that that's okay. But there's another aspect to this which I don't hear uh, discussed, mainly because you, I don't know that you can quantify it at all or measure it, but it, it will be there. And that is that um, if you're for- forcing people to stay away from work, when they're able and willing to do so, um, you're, there's a dignity in going to work. I mean, this is well recognized. So there's a spiritual benefit to working and earning a living um, that, uh, that contributes to the well-being of the person. Now, again, this can be, it, it tends to be uh, by some, but the, the, this concern for being able to get to work and earn a living um, tends to be portrayed as uh, not really being interested in the in the health of the person. It's just about economics and this sort of thing. And I think that betrays the attitudes of the critics. If that's all they say, uh, maybe the, it's fair in some instances as a criticism, but really um, people need to go to work. As it's part of a human need. It's part of the, that we have roles to play in society. and. Um, if you deny the person that dignity uh, for too long, what, it will have an impact on them spiritually, um, and um, it will ha- then have a knock-on effect uh, because of the unity of the hum- human person in all aspects of their life, including health, I, I suggest. Um, and so, uh, again, where does that balance lie? It's, it's very difficult if you're running a state or something, to know how to balance all these factors, I, I would say. It, it, you can imagine nearly everybody in charge is going to mis- make a mistake somewhere. Uh, the, the nature of the political debate doesn't really allow us to examine that uh, constructively, unfortunately. But what I would say is if people aren't thinking about the, the, the need for work, um, and it's really preferential, it's not just about getting the money so you can live, it's, there's a dignity to doing this, which just does not seem to be taken into consideration in the debate at the moment. Um, and I would like to say that your 50-mile march, in a way, is, is, a, is signifying this as well, that 
because there's effort involved, there's work, literally. We're, do, we're doing work to walk in a natural way. But, but earning a living is a, is, a, um, is a natural thing for us to do um, and contributes again. It, it's in, it has to be done in harmony with our end, uh, as, which is to be in union with God in heaven. Uh, but it, it certainly has its place. Indeed, I would say uh, I have a formula, nature uh, plus purpose equals immunity. And that might seem kind of like an odd equation, but, but I'll try to justify it. Yeah, uh, do, do. When I was in college, I had uh, a, a period, an extended period of illness that was never quite diagnosed. Initially, I thought that it was mono, but there were several tests that came back inconclusive or negative. And now looking back, I wonder if it might have been the H1N1, the swine flu, because it was shortly after the, the big outbreak. And I had been to Turkey where they had had a particularly bad uh, epidemic of, of swine flu. So I was on my back for at least a week, just feeling totally awful. And then uh, there were another couple of weeks after that when I was feeling still sort of sick as a dog. And somewhere in that period, I think that I lost my motivation. I lost my sense of purpose. I lost all enthusiasm for the things that I was working on, uh, and and I needed to rediscover a sense of purpose before I could get better. And it took me months to recalibrate everything in my life to be able to to find the the motivation to start to move again in ways that that inspired me. So I couldn't go to the gym anymore. I couldn't do these sort of long distance runs that I used to do when I was uh, you know young and and free and in high school, and. Looking back, in hindsight, I've kind of cobbled together this framework for thinking about not just autoimmunity, but but getting stronger in general, and how it's the interplay of natural stressors, things like you know uh, gravity. We we encounter gravity and and having to lift objects, including ourselves. Uh, that that's at the basis of of strength. Um, temperature is another stressor that that leads us to to get stronger, whether it's hot temperature or cold temperature. So these natural stressors, um, plus the the general challenge of finding our purpose in life, um, is is kind of an animating contest, and it, it, in my experience, is is the key to to feeling well. Where when we don't have a purpose, it's easy to almost distract ourselves with whatever pains, um, you know, sub psychosomatic or or real come our way, and and. At any given moment, most of us are dealing with some sort of pain. Yesterday, I stubbed my toe really bad on one of the cleats here at the dock. Uh, and if I were, you know, if I didn't have anything else to think about, I'd probably be thinking about that pain. But but the fact that uh, that I've got, you know, interesting conversations to have and interesting work ahead of me, it just kind of fades into the background. And, yes, I've, I've been thinking about what you're saying in another context actually that um uh someone was telling me that, that she she had a, a difficulty um in the sort of obsessive thinking she you know that was distracting you know it was making her unhappy and you know, she was obsessed on a particular problem um and it occurred to me afterwards that the problem is not obsession we're made to be obsessed we're made to seek god and seek happiness and seek him 
And in a sense, that drives everything we do. We can't escape from it. Um, if you lose that obsession, you, you, which seems to have happened in a way to you, that is not good. We lose a sense of purpose in life. But the, the goal is to direct that desire for happiness and for life in the right direction. So it's, it seems to me it's not just purpose. I agree with everything you say, but ideally the right purpose. And, and I think that is what Christianity uniquely supplies. Um, without it, um, there, that you will have fracture. Something is going to be off. Other things may be good, and a purpose is better than no purpose. But really, we, we all have that drive to be happy. And if we lose that, we really are in trouble. I mean, it seems to me that's what uh, you were sinking towards, is the, the, the losing the drive altogether um, in that situation. So, yeah. And there is a parallel here. It's not a perfect analogy, but the recovery of the the strength that that our ancestors had is in some ways parallel to the the quest of you know the the, the spiritual journey to recover what's been lost uh through the fall and you know we will not obtain the uh you know immortal bodies through weightlifting and and open air exercise but it is sort of a metaphor that can help us along the way Yes. Okay. Well, give us a few details. I think we're, that closes the, the discussion off nicely. But before we say goodbye, give us a few details about those who are local, how they can uh, team up with you, and then and when it is and where and those sort of details. And then also more generally about your move nat, your natural movement, movement and the broader picture that you're promoting. I, I get your email. So just tell us about that again. So the website and the newsletter are called a natural method. It's a natural method.com. And there's a special page uh, within that. Uh, if you just say slash March, then you'll get the, the, the page that where you can sign up for uh, the guide to efficient marching and the checklist for uh, what it takes to organize your own March. It's the, the mundane stuff like what kinds of shoes and socks are best uh, to, you know, how to reach out and, and, and then, you know, plan a march of whatever length you choose. Uh, don't get locked into thinking it has to be a 50-mile march. So the, the general idea, again, it's inspired by JFK, but the, the deeper inspiration goes back to uh, the, the ideas of physical culture. And the more I learn, uh, you know, I'm excited to, to be exploring this path of uh, you know, Catholic physical culture as, as laid out by Pope Pius XII. Uh, but there's related principles in the writings of uh, an early 20th century naval officer and pioneer of physical education named George Hebert. Uh, and, and he did some, uh, yeah, really incredible work on what actually does it take to become strong in order to be useful. So he tied it to a framework of, of morality and virtue, uh, but also getting technical about the, the best way to do things. And he found that rather than doing isolated exercises in a gym, he got much better results with the recruits for the Navy by exposing them to uh, simulated but real world challenges. So things like running, jumping, climbing, swimming, fighting, crawling, 
uh, the, the full range of human uh, movements. And uh, this is called the natural method or la method naturelle. And uh, I'm not claiming that my method is the natural method, but it is a natural method and you might find some inspiration for it. Uh, so I write about everything from, you know, uh, fasting and, and uh, nutrition to ways to increase your strength using a home gym or body weight exercises. Uh, and I've got an upcoming series on eyesight and how the, the computer screen combined with corrective lenses is a recipe for deteriorating eyesight, but um, some ways that we can start to get it back. You might notice I, I took off my glasses in the course of this interview because okay. I can see you well enough at 18 inches and I don't need right. those glasses. Right. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, my eyesight, the moment I gave in and started wearing glasses, remember I'm a lot older than you, I noticed that my eyesight just got progressively worse and worse. I mean, it just it really- Same here. Yeah. Anyway. So local people can also link up um, with our March. Just shoot me an email and um, sign up for the newsletter. Okay. Uh, we will be starting early on Treasure Island, 5 a.m., and making our way around, making the most of the daylight that we get here in the, the early summertime. Okay. Terrific. Charlie, thanks very much. And I hope our next conversation, I'd love to know more about Pius Twelfth. actually, when you're ready to tell us about that. That sounds very interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be doing a podcast with, with Kevin Vost uh, in a couple weeks, actually less, less than that. Um, and, and we'll go into more detail. And uh, the new podcast project is an offshoot of a natural method. And I'm calling it the culture club, looking at how, you know, different cultures attract different kinds of, uh, of, of customers for people in the physical fitness world. So if you're a trainer or a gym owner or just someone who's enthusiastic about becoming your own personal trainer, uh, these interviews are a way to help you think about what are your values, why are you doing what you do, and using that to motivate and inform the way that you stay healthy. Okay, terrific. Um, till next time, Charlie, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, David. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. If you enjoyed this episode, then please give us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others to find it too. Also, if you're interested in delving more deeply into the material that we discuss, you can do a course at the Pontifex University website. That's pontifex.university.